We have given God our praise in song. We have expressed our devotion to him. Now we prepare for the reading and the hearing and the preaching of his word, which is holy and true. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we bow before you and we thank you for the truth that we have just confessed in song which is that you have indeed set your loving hand upon us. And like David of old in that psalm, Psalm 139, so we testify today that we, we cannot get away from you. There's no place we can go where we have gone beyond the reach of your loving hand, and we thank you for that. We rest in that. Our consolation and our hope is in that truth. So even now, as we turn to your word, we're encouraged by the thought that you've set your love upon us. For surely then you will bless the ministry of your word in our lives by your spirit. And in that spirit of confidence, we ask then that you would do just that, that you would Teach us now, correct us if correction is what we need, rebuke us if rebuke is what we need, strengthen our faith and hope and love. We thank you for Christ who is the living word, and we pray in his name, amen. Well, you can see in your bulletin this morning that once again, I have availed myself of that very useful term when it comes to planning a sermon, the term selections. No one scripture passage today, but as you'll see, selections, a number of them. What have we been up to lately? In our sermons on Sunday mornings, we've been making our way through 1st and 2nd Samuel, and we're on the home stretch of that series that we've been at for a while, nearing the end of 2nd Samuel. Last week, it was chapter 20 in that book. And remember, last week, it was yet another rebellion that was launched against David's rule. There have been quite a few of those in the course of 2 Samuel. Way back at the beginning of the book, maybe you remember, there was the one that was launched by Abner. Remember that one? Abner tried to make Saul's son Ishbosheth king. That didn't end well. More recently, there was the one that was launched by David's own son Absalom. That didn't end well. In some ways, it didn't end well for David either, even though his cause prevailed. And then last week, sure enough, it was a worthless man, and I only call him that because the Bible calls him that, a worthless man named Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjaminite who thought that he would give it a go. And remember that one, that rebellion got going right after Absalom was put down. David wasn't even back in Jerusalem yet. And already the tribes of Israel started squabbling among themselves. And it was that squabbling 
It was that tension and conflict among the tribes that led Sheba to lead a breakaway. Remember, he blew the trumpet and said, We have no portion in David. We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. That one didn't end well either. Sheba was trapped and killed, and that was the end of that, and that's as far as we got last week. So finally, once again, you might say that we're back to where we ought to be, which is we're back to the one people of God, all the tribes of Israel, being ruled by their one king, a king from the tribe of Judah. Finally, we're back to where we ought to be. But at this point, we can hardly be blamed if this feels like a rather fragile state of affairs. At this point, after three of these rebellions in one Bible book, we can hardly be blamed if we start thinking, how long till the next one? Who's going to lead the next one? Descendant of Saul, or a son of David, or a worthless man like Sheba, the son of Bichri. By now it feels fragile, it feels unsettled, like it's only a matter of time. We start thinking, what's the next issue that's going to come up among the tribes that gets them squabbling again? So that somebody else leads a breakaway like Sheba did. Now the good news is that there is not another one in this book. We've only got five chapters left in 2 Samuel. No, four of them. And there isn't another rebellion against David's rule, at least not one that we're told about. David dies early on in the next Bible book, which is 1 Kings. The Bible doesn't record any more uprisings like the ones we've seen before David died. So that's the good news. The bad news is that things still feel fragile and unsettled anyway. And they should. It makes sense if we've gotten to the point of feeling that way after everything that we've seen in this history. The reason why it feels that way is that the people of Israel have been exposed by this history. We've seen their propensity toward rebellion and division so many times. So even if it doesn't rear its head one more time in David's own lifetime, still it's unsettling just knowing that the people of Israel are like that and that that possibility is always out there, the possibility for division and rebellion again. Even though it doesn't happen one more time in David's own lifetime, Still, it is just a matter of time because it does happen again after Solomon's lifetime, a few generations down the road. And that time, it sticks. It lasts. At that point, after Solomon, there's a division between north and south among the people of God that lasts for hundreds of years until they're all crushed and conquered and exiled. So that's why I say 
Things feel fragile and unsettled for us at this point where we've arrived near the end of 2 Samuel. And we can add this too. It's heartbreaking that, that this keeps happening and that we know it's going to happen again because this is not the way it's supposed to be. The people of Israel were one people. They were the one people of God. And they should have acted like it, right? They should have held together in their oneness, but they did not. A few weeks back in our sermon discussion, somebody made the insightful observation that there's something somewhat ironic about the fact that we typically refer to this period in Old Testament history as the period of the united kingdom. The United Dynasty. It's true, they had not yet been lastingly divided the way they're going to be after Solomon, but this hardly feels united, this history that we've been reading. It's Saul against David, and then it's the household of Saul against David, and then it's Absalom against David, and then it's Sheba against David. If this is united, I'd hate to see divided. So this Sunday, I thought we'd seize it as an opportunity as a congregation, to reflect upon the theme, yea, the calling of unity. Before we keep going in 2 Samuel, we're going to stop and think about this theme of of unity and division among God's people. And it's a valuable theme for us to stop and think about because it's got everything to do with our life as the church today. This isn't just noticing some some developments in Israel's history in the time of David. This is of perennial interest. This is of abiding concern. So the word for the day is unity. And here's how we're going to approach it. Here's how I want to unpack it. We're going to make our way through these four points. First of all, the reality of unity. Israel was one in so many ways. God had made them one. The reality of their unity. And then second, we'll reflect upon the calling to unity. Israel was one. Well, then they should have acted like it. They were called to love one another and to hold together as one. The calling. And third, we'll stop and think about the challenge to unity. What is it that makes it so hard? For the people of God, then and now, to love one another and to hold together as we should, the challenge. And then finally, happily, we'll reflect upon the hope of unity for all of our struggles, for all of our sinful propensities. God's purpose is that his people are going to experience their oneness in the most beautiful way in the end. And the purposes of God are realized. So the reality and the calling and the challenge, and the hope of the unity of God's people. Let me say, of those four, we'll spend most of our time on the first. So again, I'll say, if you look at your watch and you think, oh dear, he's still on point one, don't despair, because we'll just touch on points two, three, and four a bit more briefly to round out our reflections. So let's begin with the first one, the main one, which is the reality 
of unity. In so many different ways, the people of Israel were one. We'll start with Israel and then make our way to the church today. They were one. That was their reality. That was their objective state of affairs. And this is what got me thinking about this theme as we've been making our way through these recent chapters in 2 Samuel. All of these different ways in which the people of Israel were one. So many different aspects of their life as a people that just had the number one written all over them. We can start with the most obvious, the most important. Israel had one God. One God. And here's where I'll share some selections from Scripture as we make our way through the reality of unity. They had one God. Deuteronomy 6, well-known words. Deuteronomy 6 at verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. It was characteristic of the other nations around them that each nation had lots of gods. The Egyptians, the Canaanites, the Philistines, You name it, lots of gods. Among those nations, it was common that each locality would have some local variation on a national god. Like you pull up at the outskirts of town, and there's a sign that says that the Chamber of Commerce welcomes you to Jericho, home of the following gods and goddesses. But not Israel. One god. One God who was worthy of all their devotion so that you didn't have to split your time between different temples depending upon the day of the week. One God who was able to meet all their needs so that you didn't have to have a rain God and a sun God and a fertility goddess depending upon the time of year or what you happened to be in need of at the time. One God. So that's first under this heading of the reality of unity. Here's a second They were one people. One people. What came to mind for me is is what God says to the people through Moses when they get to Mount Sinai. They've come out of Egypt. Exodus 19. He says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's Exodus 19. There are so many places we could go. There was a singularity. There was a oneness about Israel as the people of God. That was their identity. It's true. There were 12 tribes. But their oneness as a nation composed of those tribes, that was the main thing. It's like that great scene in the movie Miracle where Coach Herb Brooks finally gets his hockey players to say, I play for the USA. Right? And not for this or that college that they went to. It mattered what college they went to. But in that setting, their national identity was the main thing. That was true of Israel. They were one people. So one God, one people. Here's a third. One salvation. One salvation in their history. Exodus 15, after their rescue at the Red Sea. 
You have that great song of Moses that celebrates it. Exodus 15, Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. And then later he sings, You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. As one people, that was the one history that they shared a salvation storyline recorded in a song for them to sing. God saved them as one people, brought them out of Egypt, rescued them there at the sea, brought them into the land. One salvation storyline that they could all look back upon. Really going all the way back to Abram, who was the one father of them all. Going all the way back to Abram, whom God called out of Ur of the Chaldeans, whom God called out of idolatry. One salvation, one history from the beginning. By way of contrast, it's not quite that way for us as a nation. I mean the USA. This is something that hit me last summer when our family had the chance to travel to Washington State for a few weeks. It's true, we are one nation. We are the United States of America, but we don't all have the same history in quite the same way. It hit me when we, when we got out there, and I mean when we got off the plane. I've lived my whole life in this mid-Atlantic part of our country with its historical storylines and with the sense of identity that comes from that. Revolutionary war. Civil war. You go to another part of the country and you realize it's not quite the same. Washington didn't even become a state until 1889. The historical storylines out there are different from the ones here. The ones that I grew up with. The ones that shaped me. So yeah, we're one nation. We're the United States of America, but the 50 states that make up our union now, we don't have quite the same unifying history the way Israel did. We have all of these separate storylines that all fed into the one stream that is our national experience now. But not Israel. They were saved as one people at the same time coming out of Egypt. And you can tell from the Old Testament that one historical salvation storyline was huge in terms of their sense of identity as one nation. Over and over again throughout the Old Testament, they look back on that as something, historically speaking, they'd all been through and that they had all emerged from. One salvation. Here's a fourth. One God, one people, one salvation. Here's a fourth. One law. One law to govern them. Exodus chapter 20. There they are at the mountain. God spoke all these words saying, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And then the rest of the Ten Commandments follow from there. And then the rest of the law of Moses follows from there. One law to govern them in their national life. Wherever you went in Israel, even if there were local 
customs and expectations and even some local rules and ordinances. Still, you could count on this. It was the law of Moses that was supposed to guide and govern their national life. It was the law of Moses that applied wherever you went. It was supposed to. One law. And then our fifth one follows on that. We'll call it one worship. One worship. That was part of the law. Listen to these words from Deuteronomy 12. As Moses is getting them ready to cross into the land. Deuteronomy 12 at verse 8. He says, you shall not do according to all that we are doing here today. Everyone doing whatever is right in his own eyes. For you have not as yet come to the rest and to the inheritance that the Lord your God is giving you. But when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit. When he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety. Then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. There you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present, and all your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord. Deuteronomy 12. One place, one central place for their life as a worshiping nation. In Israel, there wasn't going to be local worship with local flavors. There was going to be that one place that was going to be the central place for their worship of God. And there would be those several times each year when they'd gather in that one place for national festivals to give Him praise. It's not that they could not acknowledge God in any way in their towns and villages. They could. And not only that, but the law of Moses made allowances for the fact that some people might not be able to make the trip to that central place to offer their sacrifices. That's all true. But the point is, it wasn't anything goes in those towns and villages. It was still the case that Israel's national life of worship, especially worship and sacrifice, was centered on that one place. And again, they had one law to govern how they would worship. And that, that was a unifying reality all its own. One worship. Here's a sixth on the list. And don't worry, when we get through them, there are eight of them. I'll remind you of what they were. Here's a sixth. One king. One king. Remember what God said to Saul about the king who would follow him. So this now is taking us back to things we've seen in this sermon series. 1 Samuel 13. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. 1 Samuel 13, and then two chapters later, chapter 15. Samuel said to Saul, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. 1 Samuel 15. You see, there was a singularity about the kingdom, ideally governed by one king over the whole. That was God's purpose for his one people. They would be shepherded by one king, one king at a time. That was, that was his plan for them. Here's another. Here's a seventh on our list. One land. One land. When God calls Abram in Genesis 12, 
Genesis 12 begins this way. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. A few verses later, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. And that promise is repeated again and again, not just to Abraham, but then to Isaac and to Jacob. One land for this one people. They weren't going to have some kind of vast empire that included far-flung lands that were nowhere near the mainland of Israel, with the king making occasional visits to his subjects in those distant realms. No, they were going to have that one land on the map. And that mattered. For their sense of national identity. It does matter to be physically located with other people that you belong to. That you're joined with in common cause. This is a point that we've had driven home for us as a family over the past several years. The school that our kids attend. The campus of the school is located on Route 29 in Falls Church. But for the past several years... In order to get through COVID and in order to create for the student body the spacing, the room that COVID required, the school found a second location about a mile away. And for the past two years, including this current school year, the student body has been split half and half between those two locations. And it's worked fairly well as a temporary solution to get through COVID. We're grateful that they found a way. But next year, they're all going to be back on the main campus again. That's the plan. And though it's going to feel crowded, and though the seniors will have to play nice with the seventh graders again, that's certainly going to be better for promoting a sense of identity as one school again. It's hard to feel that way when you're separated, especially when the bustling artery that is Route 50 runs between. For Israel in the Old Testament, as expansive as their land became, and it did expand at times after David, still it was one land. They weren't separated into different lands with other nations between them. Territory that you'd have to cross to connect with some other tribe. And that fit the fact that they were one people and that several times a year they were supposed to come together as one people and worship their one God in their one central city, one land. Here's one more. One hope. It's always a good way to end a a list. (laughs) Hope for the future. They had one hope. Again, Genesis 12. What did the Lord say to Abram? He said, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. He makes that promise to Abram. A promise for the future. So that that becomes a hope, not only that Abram holds on to, but that the nation that descends from him will hold on to together. Even the prophet Balaam, this is in the book of Numbers, the prophet Balaam gets a glimpse of this and says so as a prophet. 
Balaam, who was hired by the king of Moab to curse the people of Israel. He says, I can't curse this people. They're blessed. I can't curse them. Among other things, he says, they're blessed with a hope. This is Numbers 24. The prophet Balaam says, How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your encampments, O Israel, like palm groves that stretch afar, like gardens beside a river, like aloes that the Lord has planted, like cedar trees beside the waters. Water shall flow from his buckets, and his seed shall be in many waters, and his king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. Numbers 24. The future that they looked to as a people was just that. It was a glorious future that was in store for them as one people. They would rise and shine among the nations as one. They'd be the fount of blessing to the nations as one. And everyone in Israel, not just one of the tribes, not just several of them, not just the tribe of Judah that David would come from. All of them could latch on to that vision and long, even ache, for the fulfillment of that hope. From Dan to Beersheba, top to bottom, north to south, that was their one hope. So, There's our list. There's our litany. You know it pains me to have a list of eight. It feels like you should stop at seven. It's far more biblical, but I couldn't help myself. One God, one people, one salvation, one law, one worship, one king, one land, one hope. The people of Israel were one in all of those ways. And more, I stopped at eight, but we could have kept going. That was their... That was their reality. That was their objective state of affairs. And it's not hard to see how all of this carries over into the experience, the life of the Christian church today. The Christian church around the world, throughout the ages, we are one. That's our reality. That's our objective state of affairs. And the list that we just went through in Israel's case, all eight of them on that list, One God, people, salvation, law, worship, king, land, hope. Of the eight items on that list, there's only one of them. Having one land that might give us pause when it comes to the Christian church today. And that's because the Christian church doesn't have a land in this age the way Israel did. The Christian church is a scattered international communion in this age. The Christian church does not have a land That's true, but we will, and that land will be the earth in the world to come. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. That land in the world to come will be the earth glorified. That'll be our one common Home and temple and workshop and playground, creation itself, as Paul says in Romans 8, will be set free from its bondage to corruption. So even that one on our list of eight, even that one, the, the idea of one land, when we think about our future, even that one touches down for us. 
And of course, the other seven on the list do as well. We have one God, Christian church, around the world, throughout the ages. One God. We are one people. We are united by one common salvation storyline in history. And that storyline centers on the death and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. And we live by the one law that is the Bible. And when we gather for worship on the Lord's Day, it's that one Bible that regulates our gatherings. And we have one King Jesus. And ours is the shared hope of the world to come, including the land. That is the earth made glorious. All eight of them. So it turns out that the reality of Israel's unity in the Old Testament has a lot to say about our own today. Their unity pointed forward in all of these ways to our own. Brings to mind Ephesians 4. That's why I read Ephesians 4 for us earlier in our service. Because in that passage, Paul's making the point that the Christian church is one. And sure enough, he's got a list. He's got a litany of his own. What did we hear earlier in Ephesians 4? Paul says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Paul's list has seven. Ephesians 4. And in many ways, that list overlaps with ours. That's the reality of our unity. And notice the connection that Paul makes there in Ephesians 4. Let me say, this brings us from point one this morning to point two. From the reality of unity to the calling to practice unity. Because in Ephesians 4, Paul says all of that. He he goes on. He, He marshals his own litany about the unity of the church when he's driving home the point that the Christians in Ephesus, the Christians everywhere, ought to live like it. We are one. Well, then we ought to show it. Show it in the way that you relate to each other. That's the calling. Listen to it again in Ephesians 4. Before he gets to his his litany of oneness, he opens up like this. He says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And that's when he launches into his list of seven ones. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You see, unity, because it's our reality becomes something practically to maintain. You are one, well then show it. Show it in the way that you relate to each other. That should have been true of Israel as well. That's why all of Israel's bickering and and quarreling and divisions and fractures and internal rebellions and civil wars were so heartbreaking. It shouldn't have been that way. This was their calling. This was part of their witness to the other nations to display their oneness in practical unity. That was Israel's calling. It's ours today as well. And in the life of the Christian church today, this gets really practical in the way that we relate to one another, in the way that we relate to one another in the context of our life as one congregation, New Hope Presbyterian Church here in Fairfax, Virginia. 
It means bearing with one another in our relationships, our flaws and failings. It means forgiving one another when forgiveness is called for. It means putting other people's interests before your own when you find that interests aren't the same. It means guarding other people's reputations in the church instead of tearing them down. It means leaning in and getting to know one another. And caring for one another and praying for one another. You see, we are one. Well, then we're called to act like it. We're called to show it. That's the calling to unity. Something to maintain. And there are all of those instructions in all of these New Testament letters about what it looks like practically to, to be eager to maintain it. That's the calling. But it ain't easy. And this is where we go from our second point to our third. From the calling to unity to the challenge. The challenge that we face, the challenge that we're up against as soon as we take seriously the calling to maintain unity among God's people. In a word, what we're up against is sin. And I realize that is hardly an earth-shattering observation. Of course, That's true, what we're up against is sin. But I do think it's worth reflecting upon what it is about sin that makes this hard. The calling to lean in and love one another and to hold on to one another as we should. Though we've been renewed by God's grace, we still wrestle with the power of sin. And so it's struggle we face as a church family. Well, think about it. It is the propensity of sin to create enmity and opposition between ourselves and other people. That's what sin is like. That's what it does. It's the bitter fruit that it bears. It's the propensity of sin to create enmity, opposition between ourselves and other people. And there's a kind of sad logic in that. Sadly, it makes sense. Why? Well, what is sin? Ultimately, sin is a principle of opposition to God in its purest essence. Sin is the desire to want to topple God and take his place. It's the desire to do away with God and reign in his place. Well, think about it. If that's what you really want, if what you want is to reign, well, there can only be one sovereign. There's only room for one on the throne of the universe. And so if what you want is to reign, then at that point, other people become exceedingly annoying, frustrating, thwarting. Other people are obstacles to be removed. They're enemies to be conquered. They're not fellow human beings to be loved. Not fellow divine image bearers to be served. They're obstacles. They're enemies. Because after all, in a world in which sin is left to run amok, if we're left entirely to ourselves without any divine grace, without any divine restraint, then deep down every single person wants to be that one single person who occupies that one single throne. And that gets ugly. Because now it's every man, woman, and child against every other man, woman, and child, and life on earth becomes a brutal global game of king of the hill. Except it's not a game. 
Now, obviously, that's the worst case, right? That's, that's a nightmare scenario. That's imagining a world in which there is no divine grace, no divine restraint. Thankfully, God is mercifully restraining and transforming. But you get the idea. That's what sin is like. That's its nature. It's the propensity of sin to create enmity, opposition between ourselves and other people. That's what we're up against. That's the challenge. That's that's what makes it hard to lean in so as to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Thankfully, it is not an insurmountable challenge. And here we conclude with our fourth and final point. After the reality of unity and the calling to unity and the challenge that we face, finally there is the hope. The hope that unity will be realized. It's true. It's not easy, the calling to love one another as one people because we are one people. We're up against it in this life. We're up against the power of sin, but we're not without hope in this life, and that's because the grace of God is more powerful than sin has ever been or will ever be. Even in the here and now, as a church, as a church family, And it matters even to say that. Even in the here and now, we get to experience something of what this means. Before I mentioned things like forbearance and forgiveness and deference and honor and caring and praying for one another in our relationships in the church. Haven't we all tasted and seen that it's possible? That it's real? That it's good? To experience that kind of fellowship, even in the here and now. Even if you're sitting there thinking, yeah, but I haven't experienced it much. Or or I haven't experienced it in, in all the ways that I'd like. This practical unity. The very fact that that bothers you is a good sign. And it bothers you precisely because you have known something of it. And you want more. You want to grow in your experience of that oneness in your relationships with fellow believers. Even in the here and now, and then, of course, beyond the here and now, beyond this world. Ours is the hope of the world to come, and there, finally, perfectly, the oneness of God's people will be brought to fruition. I love the the way Jesus describes what's in store in Matthew 8. He says, I tell you, Many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. I think what's so sweet about that that image, that description, is the knowledge that in that world, Jews and Gentiles alike will recline together as one. Those who can look to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as those from whom they naturally descended and those who don't look to them that way. We will be one. We'll recline with them and with one another. One feast. Imagine a family reunion like that. Can you imagine a family reunion utterly devoid of bickering and quarreling? 
and divisions and fractures and old grudges and new tensions, none of that. None of that at all. Just sweet fellowship with one another and with our Savior and with our God. That itself is our hope. And the very fact that that hope's in store for us, that ought to stir us now to be, as Paul says, eager. We might say hungry. To maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And it is practical. It's local. It's not just global church, capital C. It's also our shared life as New Hope Presbyterian Church right here, right now, Fairfax, Virginia. By the grace of God, may we be a people here in this congregation who are marked by those things that make for unity, forbearance, and forgiveness, and deference, and honor, and caring, and praying, so that the people in this city, in this community around us, as they get to know us, will get to know that we mean it. It's not just a pious platitude. We mean it when we say that we're one in Christ. May we show it. May it be so. And amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we bow before you and we thank you that in all of the ways that we've surveyed this morning and more, we are one. You've made us one. We pray that you would grant us grace to be eager, to be hungry as we ought to be, to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Sin is powerful. The power of sin makes for tensions and divisions. The power of sin would have us running away from each other. But your grace is more powerful. By your grace, may we run toward each other and show the world what it looks like to be one. Thank you that that is our hope, and we pray these things in Jesus' name, our one King and Savior. Amen.